Great movies make us imagine. They make us dream. They transport us from our couches to somewhere else entirely. Within each of these movies is a myriad of different moments that are specifically designed to give us joy, make us feel hope and heartbreak, and leave us in complete disbelief. Sports are very much the same, except for one crucial difference. The stories we see play out on the field, the diamond, the court, or on the ice, of course, are unscripted. They're stories that make us marvel at the bounds of human capability and force us to rethink what's possible in our world. Movies and sports were meant to collide, and in that collision, we are given stories that have earned the right to be told, retold, discussed, and debated for generations. I'm Bruce Murray, and this is The Replay, sports on the big screen. Today, we start with one of the most beloved baseball movies of all time, a movie whose very existence gave new life to its subject matter, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. The movie, of course, 1992's A League of Their Own, directed by the late, great Penny Marshall. Prior to this movie being released, not many, including myself, were familiar with the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. Granted, it did only exist for 12 seasons, from 1943 to 1954. But even staunch baseball fans like the film screenwriters Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, were not familiar with it. The league had almost disappeared in time. Here's Gans, who knew Penny Marshall from his time as the creator and head writer of Laverne and Shirley. I knew Penny from um, when we were both very, very, very young. It's sort of well known how big a baseball fan I am. And so Penny just like assume that I knew something about the All-American Girls Baseball League because I could, you know, I, I could talk baseball endlessly with anybody. And um, she called us up and said, you know, what do you know about the All-American Girls Baseball League? And we both, we said, the what? <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, and that was one of the things that was most intriguing to us, how this thing had just disappeared. You know, how can we say, in the mists of time, that it, it really existed. I mean, part of it may have been that it was so Midwestern and uh, we are so not Midwestern, <laughs> may have, you know, may have contributed to the ignorance, but uh, we, we, we just didn't know a thing about it. And I think that's a very important element that may have contributed to the league's disappearance from public consciousness. All 15 teams that existed throughout the league's 12 seasons were based in either Wisconsin, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, or Minnesota. So it's no surprise that Gans had never heard of it. Besides, up until that point, there wasn't a whole lot of commercially available content recounting its existence. There was a little documentary, just to be clear, on, on, it was on PBS. I mean, it was like 15 minutes long, and it was mostly just uh, the older ladies singing their song. There wasn't really much to it. It wasn't a historic, you know, it wasn't an American experience, PBS kind of thing. They just had these ladies on a bus somewhere, whatever age they were at that time. They were probably in their 60s or 70s by then. And, and they, were, they were singing this song and, and they didn't tell you very much about it. And uh, we knew that Penny was intrigued and uh, that that intrigued us. And uh, we started to do the thing that we hate most in the world, research. And research they did. How about these guys? They read a 5,000 page thesis written by a former player who had gone back to college and written about her experiences. 
They found an article in Life magazine talking about the league and its players. They spoke with Kelly Candell, the brother of former Houston Astro Casey Candell, and the son of Helen Callahan, a left-handed center fielder who played five seasons in the league alongside her older sister, Margaret. Kelly had written and produced a 27-minute documentary called, of all things, A League of Their Own, back in 1987, detailing the playing exploits of his mother and his aunt. To give them credit, they kind of planted in our mind the idea of of centering the thing about around sisters. They had kind of a different take because in their version, uh, I think, you know, one of the sisters had a baby and she had to leave the baby back in right. uh, back home or something. And we, we didn't, we didn't use uh, any of that, but that was, that, that was kind of a, uh, kind of a key propulsion uh, to get us started and, and cracking the, the story was to, uh, you know, it was to center it around a sibling rivalry. The next piece of the puzzle would come when Gans and Mandel were trying to figure out the emotional hook of the film. How were they going to make sure the audience really cared about the journey of their two protagonists? Babalu said, well, isn't this like you and me leaving New York and going to California when we're 22 years old and wanting to become comedy writers and not knowing what the future would be? Isn't it kind of the similar experience emotionally? That, that, that kind of informed uh, the movie to us to a great extent. Gans and Mandel got to work crafting the story, picking and choosing various details from their vast research to incorporate into their screenplay. We were not looking to do a nonfiction story in, in, in any way. I mean, we, there were certain things that we loved. We took the actual team names. We loved the idea that they made them play in those outfits Yes, <laughs> we, we you know, we, we saw those short skirts and we just said, oh, that's great that they 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 shoved these girls into these outfits. We loved the fact that they sent them to charm school. Yeah. And we, we used we, that was out of, terrific. And out of the 5000 page thesis, we used one thing. We really? found a young lady who is living above a gym with her father. Yes. And that would be that became Marlo. That became Marlo. Who she go, boy, that's fresh and colorful. But, yes. you know, other than that, we were we were really not looking for anybody's specific story. We were making our characters up. We knew that one of the team managers was a former baseball great, Jimmy Fox. Sure. So he said, well, that's fun. We we made him an alcoholic. <laughs> we we shoved the we shoved the liquor down his throat. Yeah. And uh, but we loved we loved the idea. I don't know what Jimmy Fox. Jimmy Fox was long dead by that time. We don't know what his attitude was about it. The couple of the women we interviewed said that he was lovely. That didn't seem fun. Let's compare the Jimmys, shall we? Jimmy Dugan hit 484 home runs in the big leagues, all for the Chicago Cubs. Jimmy Fox hit 534 home runs while playing for the Philadelphia Athletics, the Boston Red Sox, the Chicago Cubs, and the Philadelphia Phillies. Once his playing career had ended, Jimmy Dugan managed the Rockford Peaches, taking them to the World Series where they lost to the Racine Bells. Jimmy Fox managed the Fort Wayne Daisies, taking them to the first round of the playoffs where they lost to the Rockford Peaches. Both drank a lot. 
we felt at no point that we needed to be, uh, you know, um, restricted in, 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 in those ways. We just wanted to be true to the spirit of it and to, you know, to, to, to inform the audience of what the experience actually was for the, for the, you know, yeah, for the and, women who were in right. it. And we didn't want 70 year old women with bats coming after us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thankfully Lowell and Babalu stayed safe. In fact, the film was received incredibly well by the league's former players. Here's author and illustrator Anika O'Rock, who spoke to a lot of the women about their thoughts on the movie for her book, The Incredible Women of the AAGPBL. That movie came out when I was about nine years old. So, of course, I was just like blown away and I had never heard of anything like this. And I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. But, um, you know, once I had the opportunity to speak to some of these women, I, I was a little nervous because I, I didn't want to be disappointed. I didn't want to hear it was like a total fictionalized farce and, you know, nothing was true. And I was really grateful to learn that they did get a lot of things right. But one common sentiment across the board was that it captured the spirit of the league, the talent of the women and the skill of the women, um, you know, and, and what they were able to accomplish and just sort of the spirit of the time. So Gans and Mendel had accomplished what they set out to achieve. Now, whenever you're writing a piece of fiction, there will always be things that appear on the page or on the screen that don't exactly mirror the reality of the times. That's just part and parcel of a Hollywood screenplay. And while none of these things impacted the achievement of the film, there were a few things that the film may have skipped over or not paid quite as much attention to as it perhaps deserved. Number one, the film's depiction of the duration and popularity of the league. The movie kind of makes it seem like this was like a one season thing. Like the men were gone. Let's kind of hurry and fill up this little void and, and for a season. And then on we go. And this lasted 12 seasons and was really popular. And then when it declined in popularity, there were so many different reasons why. And they weren't really necessarily just because men were back. <laughs> there were a lot of reasons that it declined and very unfortunate reasons. So let's dig into this for a moment. First, the popularity of the league. From its inception through the 40s, the league's popularity grew at a fairly steady rate, with total attendance peaking at a number just shy of a million for the 1948 season. And that's three years after World War II had ended. Maybelle Blair was there. The former Peoria Red Wings pitcher explains why there was such an interest among the general public. A lot of people couldn't go to ball games in those days because they had to have uh, gas rashing stamps and everything. So they had to stay home. So this is why we grew so many uh, people was because of gas rationing and the baseball players weren't that good uh, when, uh, during the war. Because all they had left was the four F's, as if you really think about it, and uh, they weren't that good. Four F being the classification for those unfit for military service in World War II. The league's popularity was also helped by its coverage in both national periodicals as well as in local newspapers, something with which the league's founder, Philip Wrigley, whose name was changed to Walter Harvey in the film, made sure to put a lot of emphasis on. Philip Wrigley actually bankrolled the whole thing himself. He made an attempt to, you know, he tried to get a lot of major league owners on board during World War II once it became apparent that, you know, we're going to have these big stadiums with nothing happening probably or very little happening. It turns out that baseball did continue, but with sort of second, third string players. And there was a lot of unusual things that happened during that time. But the concept was just so out there for so many people that they didn't want to go in on it. So it was just 
basically he just paid for the whole thing and took a real gamble, but he was a brilliant marketing guy and he had a really great marketing and ad a couple of people behind him. Uh, one of them being a woman, which is interesting and it worked and it was very popular, but he was also very smart in that the first four teams he put, uh, rather than having them play in Wrigley field or these large stadiums, which was the original plan. Uh, he put them in home fields right near factories. So when people got out of work, with gas rations, long hours working in these war production factories. All they had to do was, you know, walk a couple of blocks down the road and go to a ball game when they got off work. And that was the genius of it because, yes, it was really popular. But unfortunately for the league, it met a premature end. According to Anika, this was due to a number of reasons. For example, television, the advent of television, and pretty soon people could be watching baseball games in the comfort of their own home. Uh, Major League Baseball was finally kind of making a comeback. There were no longer gas rations. There was also a highway system, so people were able to get farther with less. So there's, there's just kind of those societal and infrastructure things. More than this, perhaps, the biggest thing that contributed to the death of the league was when Wrigley sold off the teams to local businessmen in each city. Philip Wrigley had a vision, but when that vision faded... So did the league. So, for instance, you know, the Kalamazoo Lassies were sold to local businessmen in Kalamazoo. And so not only was there not that sort of joint cohesiveness, but a lot of these men were just local business owners without a lot of know-how and really just had that novelty in mind. They didn't really have an interest in growing the league or the sport like their predecessors had. And then when you're recruiting new women, you know, to the league, there's this sort of special brand of baseball And um, just trying to keep that together, trying to recruit without any sort of, uh, you know, joint understanding or marketing capability. That was the other thing. You know, people just, there wasn't as much uh, marketing excitement, advertisement, you know, people weren't knowing about it as much and ticket sales started to go down. I think if they had really had that that driving force behind it, like Wrigley gave it, it could have grown and, and continued. And that's how the league grew and faded away over a period of 12 years. Kind of amazing, isn't it? Considering it was almost lost to public consciousness before the film was released. But there was certainly a unique story to be told, and Penny Marshall, along with Lowell Gans and Babalu Mandel, told it very well. This we know as well. The movie took some liberties with the scouting of the women prior to the league's inaugural season. Many of the women who were scouted in those early years only played baseball as a hobby. It was just something to pass the time. Former Rockford Peaches utility player Shirley Berkovich, given the nickname Hustle due to her intensity in the field, talks about how she came to be a baseball player. My dad and my brother played, and I just kind of tagged along. Uh, I went with my brother to his uh, his games, and uh, uh, they liked me there because they put me in the outfield, and I'd shag all the balls. Then they didn't have to go out and pick up the balls. Maybelle Blair had a similar story. Well, I, I um, teased on a baseball. Uh, that's all our family knew. There wasn't much more to do uh, in my day uh, for entertainment. So we played baseball, everybody, the whole family, the whole neighborhood. We built our own baseball park. In fact, my brother used to uh, get in the old model key fort and put a gate or a, a mattress. And I'd have to ride on that dang thing to smooth out the the field and he'd get mad if I was bouncing up and down on that dark mattress, you know, I couldn't help it, you know. But anyway, we got our field all dragged and got all the weeds out and built our own ballparks. So I think we had to do for entertainment those days. The idea of becoming professionals and making money wasn't something these women ever considered as an option. That was 
until the scouts came along. Now, in the film, the league scouts, like Ernie Cappadino, played with that edge of sarcasm that only John Lovitz can, would scour the country in search of the next big talent and invite them to tryouts in Chicago's Harvey Field. In reality, things weren't quite so structured. Here's Gans. They had scouts that, you know, but it was also informal. They would they would sort of like go in these towns and just like advertise. You know, we had them all like come to Chicago for like a massive tryout. But um, our reading told us it was a little less formal than that and that there was sort of like local tryouts, you know, um, you know, in various places. But, you know, we changed it because it was just more. It was more theatrical. Shirley Berkovich was first noticed by scouts at a local tryout in Pittsburgh, and she was only 16 at the time, but she did enough to prove that she was worthy of a spot. There was an article in the newspaper saying that they were holding tryouts for the All-American Girls. Well, my brother is the one that saw it, and he said to me, why don't you go down and try out? Well, I was kind of nervous. I was 16 years old, and and... So I wasn't sure I wanted to go down there, but he he said he'd go with me and we could just sit in the stands and watch. Well, he knew, I think, that there was no way that I was going to sit in the stands and watch. I finally went down and tried out. Two weeks later, I got a telegram saying to report for spring training to Indiana. Well, I'd never been out of Pittsburgh. So... uh, I was kind of nervous about that, but we were all happy. My dad, my brother, and and I were jumping with joy. But then my mom stepped in and she says, oh, wait a minute. She says, I never heard of any girls' baseball league. She said, uh, uh, taking all these girls down to Indiana. She said, no, she said she can't go by herself. So she bought a ticket, came with me to spring training and uh, met the chaperone and the manager They assured her that everything was on the up and up, that it was really a baseball league. And so then she said I could stay. Maybelle Blair. A scout came out to uh, see me play uh, softball. And um, he says, hey, you're going to go play baseball. You're out of your mind. You know, there isn't any such thing. He says, well, maybe you just don't know. Yes, there is. There's a league going on in uh, back east. And I thought, oh, my God. I says, well, forget it. My mother wouldn't let me go anyway. So he says, well, let me follow you home. So I said, well, you can follow me home. won't do you any good. Well, he did. introduced him to my mother and my father. My mother, she wore the britches in the family, so she answered all the questions. Dad just sat there and shook his head to agree with her. So anyway, he kept going on about me signing and going back and playing baseball. And she says, my daughter's not leaving this house. You might as well forget it. Well, it went on for a while, and he finally said, Mrs. Blair, don't you understand? We're going to pay her $55 a week. My mother said, George, go crank up the car. I'm back in her suitcase, and she's on the next train out of here. And sure enough, I was on the Santa Fe headed for Chicago. $55 a week. Now think about it. In today's dollars, it's about $986 a week. That's a pretty good paycheck. And that promise of a healthy paycheck is something that we see in the scene where we first meet John Lovitz's character. It was enough money to make the promise of earning it playing baseball almost seem like a cruel joke. 
a lot of these women were making more money than their own fathers. They were certainly making more than they would in war production plants and factories. And a lot of them left. Women were taking places in the workforce they had never taken before in these war production factories. And a lot of them actually passed that up or left their job working in ammunition factories, canteen makers, all those kinds of things, because this offered more money. But a bigger paycheck didn't necessarily mean more money for their families back home. I'll tell you one thing. You don't want to learn how to play poker on the bus. Uh, my folks thought maybe they was going to get some money sent home to me. Well, I lost all my darn money on the bus playing poker. But I learned how to play, so you better not try to play with me today. The film also somewhat inaccurately portrays the necessity for each of the women to be attractive. For instance, when John Lovitz's character first meets the hard-hitting Marlowe, he doesn't want to bring her to Chicago. He has to be convinced by Dottie and Kit to bring her along. Here's Anika. They definitely opted for skill over looks, which I think was um, smart and impressive for that time. Hence the charm school. A lot of these women grew up on farms. They were tomboys. They grew up playing baseball with the boys. So by the time they got there, it was like, okay, well, if we're going to have a league and if they're going to be presentable to the general population as something that's like wholesome family fun and not kind of like a bunch of girls kicking dirt and spitting, then we're going to have to put them through some sort of funnel. This tough farm girl archetype is something that is certainly portrayed in the film. Dottie and Kit are both tough operators, having grown up on a farm in Oregon, as is Alice Gaspers, the character we see sliding into third and developing that almighty bruise. And by the way, that's a real bruise suffered by actress Renee Coleman while filming. These actresses played hard. The women of the AAGPBL had the toughness, the skills, and the work ethic to back up their passion for the game. And because of this, they were treated like the legitimate ball players they actually were. Not very often were they was there this sort of, you know, crying in the dugout and the whole exasperated, like, oh, you're too emotional. You know, that that part didn't exist. Uh, one woman had a really funny thing to say. I think her name was or I think it was Gig Smith that said this, but she said something along the lines of like, if our manager had come and taken a 10 minute long piss in the locker room, we would have kicked him out. <laughs> this brings us to that famous Jimmy Dugan line. There's no crying in baseball delivered perfectly by Tom Hanks, but maybe not perfectly by me. Despite the scene showing an emotional vulnerability from the character of Evelyn Gardner, the quote itself is beloved. Even ranking 54th on the American Films Institute's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes list. Here's Lowell and Babalu discussing how that quote came about. I'd have to explain how we write to make it clear that, how we, that we both wrote it, but... but okay. Our first draft of anything is written in longhand with a ballpoint pen. We, we write everything together, but I, it's my hand that, that puts down the, the, the first draft. But you can actually see physically how we get to the line through, you know, through different permutations of, you know, where the, where the words are exactly. Now, having said that, Tom raised that moment far beyond what we ever expected its impact to be. He performed that so brilliantly. <laughs> well, here's, here's irony. I went to Cooperstown with my wife, and I go into the gift shop, and there it is. I have to shell out 30 bucks for a line I, I go out. <laughs> well, I always joke. I say, uh, I, I, I know the first paragraph of my obituary because it's going to have, you know, this baseball in it. But, but... You know, I, I, I don't think it would have 
had the life that it's had if he had just not um, it, it, it just became musical in his voice. So while these women were tough, skilled and relentless, another thing they had in common was that they were all white. Here's Anika. At that time, the you know, society's ideal woman that should be presented in this space was also white. And therefore, women of color were excluded. And here we are, 60 years after the league folded, and there's still this weird mentality of one thing at a time. You know, like, we still need to get... There aren't any women in the door, so let's first get white women in because they'll at least be accepted first. And then... We'll get around to women of color, but we really kind of haven't gotten there yet. The film does address this lack of diversity, albeit briefly, in the scene where we see a black woman picking up a ball and throwing it back to Dottie with tremendous accuracy and force. Gans explains. We were very conscious that the, that the cast had no diversity, but it couldn't have. Yeah. I mean, it was a fact that the league, like men's baseball at that time, was strictly segregated. It just was. And we weren't going to pretend that it wasn't. And the movie wasn't about that. But we were just searching. The two of us were just searching. We were just going, should somebody say something about it? Should it be mentioned? Should it be brought up? Will it just be gratuitous? Well, you know, I mean, it, it, it just seemed preachy. So we came up with with that moment where you where just the audience could, if they if they want, they could go, oh yeah, oh yeah, baseball was still segregated then. Yeah, that shouldn't have happened, and they could just know it. Without it, you know, without it stalling the movie, you know, and getting, you know, getting sidetracked on a, on a, on another subject. Without hitting them over the head with a hammer. There are a few interviews I've dug up that said, oh, we would have gladly accepted black players had we found any that were good enough, you know, but the reality is there were plenty that were good enough. A few of them went on to actually play in the all male Negro League teams. Um, but also, you know, it's hard to say that when you've got tryouts with like 500 young white women showing up. If you're a black woman in 1945, 46, 47, and you show up to tryouts and that's what you're looking at, um, you know, that's not a welcoming or hospitable place to be. This was exactly what the great Mamie Peanut Johnson, the first female pitcher to play in the Negro Leagues, was forced to do. Here she is talking about this at the Negro League Baseball Museum back in 2000. I uh, went to try out for the all-women's White League, and uh, they rejected me, you know, I guess because I was black. But within myself, I said, hey, I know I'm better than you, you know? And the only reason that you are rejecting me because of my race, and, and this is kind of devastating to think that you won't even let me try out, you know? But I'm glad. Because for the simple reason, if they had let me play, mm -hmm. I would be just another woman ball player, not recognized for anything. But now I'm recognized as the only woman pitcher of the black major leagues. And, and, and I'm proud of that. 
It, it, it gives me something to say, well, hey, I've done something nobody else has done. And it makes me feel good. In the final scene of the film, after we see Racine beat the Peaches in the seventh game, and oh, by the way, in reality, Racine beat the Kenosha Comets that year, and the Rockford Peaches finished dead last. But does it matter? Not really. We see an older Dottie arrive at the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown for the opening of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League exhibit. It's been 45 years since the league's inaugural season, and just as long since Dottie has seen any of her former teammates. What makes this scene particularly special is the fact that most of the women participating in the scene were former players who had actually played in the league. Shirley was one of those women seeing her friends for the first time. That moment was real. Some of those girls we hadn't seen for 40 years. I'll tell you, that was so much fun. And we had such a, a good time up there. And had such. we spent 10 days uh, filming that few minute scenes that we had there at the end of the movie. And uh, it, it was just wonderful. Just having the opportunity, uh, for at least for me, to stand on Double Day Field. And I'm looking down and I'm thinking, who might have been on this mound? Maybe Babe Ruth, maybe Gary, maybe whoever. Maybell Blair. There was a part, there's going to be a speaking part. And it says, oh, Dottie, it's so good to see you. And I had that memorized backwards and forwards. And guess what? That dang Shirley got the part that should have been mine. And would you believe to this day she hasn't bought me a hot dog with all her royalties? <laughs> the role that Shirley was given was that of an older Alice Gaspers, the woman we mentioned earlier who got the bruised leg sliding into third. Her involvement in the league will forever be immortalized in that scene in the film. Now, admittedly, when I first saw this film in the theater, I didn't walk out loving it. I think I went reluctantly. I was dragged there by my now wife. I don't think I was in a great mood. And I don't remember walking out thinking it was a movie that I wanted to see. As a matter of fact, like most of us, I wasn't really familiar with the content. So it wasn't something that drew me in. I didn't even see it soon after on cable, but some years later, when I sat down and watched it again in a far better mood, admittedly, I really came to appreciate it. Not only the subject matter, but the acting performances of Tom Hanks and John Lovitz and all the women, and it really became a special movie for me. And now it's one that when I come across it on television, I have to watch certain scenes, especially the one at the end, which, please tell me, it brings a tear to your eye, because it certainly does for me every time it's on. Hard to believe, but it's been 30 years since A League of Their Own was released. It's a film that is still very much within the public consciousness and continues to educate and inspire girls all over the world to play baseball and softball. The movie has cemented itself in our culture forever. Here's Babalu. I was watching the Olympics and they were talking to the women and they had just won the gold. They go, prior to the event, they watched League of Their Own. I go, oh my wow. God. Yeah, the, the, the softball Olympic team. Two schleps yeah. sit down and write a movie, and, they, yeah. and this inspired them to win that. I go, oh, my God. Then, a couple of years ago, my kids dragged us out to Hollywood Forever Cemetery. And, like, every Tuesday night, they show a movie at the cemetery. And I'm going, I don't want to linger here because they'll, they'll make me stay. So <laughs> they showed League of Their Own. 4,000 wow. people show up, most of them in costume, and they mouth the dialogue. I go, Wow. We are now trying to get a museum for IWBC at, at uh, Rockford, uh, Illinois, where the Rockford Peaches played. We own the property there. 
and we're trying to raise money now to uh, build our activity building and uh, so we can start doing some activities there. In case you're wondering, IWBC stands for the International Women's Baseball Center, where Maybell serves on the board. We'd like to have an umpire school, batting cages, an educational little center there if kids need help, uh, represent women's baseball like they do in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. But we'd like to have it right there in Rockford, Illinois. And that's what Shirley and I are very much involved and uh, raising the money uh, t- towards this activity and have our own Hall of Fame where a lot of our people would like to be in the Hall of Fame. Well, we haven't earned to be in the Hall of Fame, but on our own, we would have our own Hall of Fame because we deserve that. This was all possible because Penny Marshall had a story that she was desperate to tell, a story that was so remarkable, it almost sounded like fiction, a story so moving, it inspired a generation of young baseball players. I think everybody pretty much agrees that if it were not for the movie, uh, you know, a lot of these women, their own children didn't even know they played professional baseball. Uh, we would still be uh, sitting, uh, knitting or uh, quilting or something like that instead of talking to you. It has given us a, a, a great opportunity to um, express how much baseball means to women. If it weren't for Penny Marshall, we wouldn't be sitting here today talking to you because no one would have known about this league had she not put it on the screen. So we, we really are thankful to her for that. Sadly, we dedicate this episode to Shirley Berkovich, who passed away at the age of 89 just a month after we had a chance to chat with her. She will be missed, but her contribution to women's baseball will certainly not be forgotten. Coming up next on the replay, sports on the big screen. One of the greatest underdog basketball stories of all time. And you talk about the movie Hoosiers. Two years ago, I got four letters from kids in Paris, France, asking for my autograph. And about eight months ago, a sportscaster from Spain called and wanted to know if I'd be on his program. So the movie just took it worldwide, and uh, it's been a good ride. The Replay, Sports on the Big Screen, is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to our lead producer, Chris Tyler, and SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. SiriusXM Podcasts.